The following presentation by Monument Wealth Management LLC is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the question, what is the point of my wealth? And what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? With over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, vice president and partner at Monument, are skilled at helping people think through these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram, at Monument Wealth and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Okay, I know this is the episode you're all clamoring for to relive 2022 in the markets, but it's good to be back. Hi, Dave. Hello, Jessica. Good to see you. In the new year, 2023, how many times have you written the date wrong this year? Not once. I haven't either. I'm ready for a new year. I think a lot of people are. (laughs) Last year, we did an episode that we got a lot of really positive feedback on where we did a look back at 2021, full year in the markets, what happened, what were the surprises, what are the big takeaways, and we wanted to do that again. So this year, obviously, we have back Aaron Hay, Monuments Portfolio Manager. Hi, Aaron. Hey, guys. And we also have Nate Tonsiger, one of our Portfolio Management Associates. Hi, Nate. Happy New Year, everyone. Dave, I want you to kick it off. Remind us to the extent that you want to go in depth or not on the broad market indicators, what the different levels, where did we end at as of the end of 2022? So just real quick from the top down, mostly everybody knows this, but depending on how you look at things, total return dividends and everything, rough numbers, the Dow was down about 8.8% for the calendar year. The S&P 500 was down a little over 18%. And the NASDAQ, which we all use as a tech proxy, was down, and I'm going to round here, down 33%. I'm rounding down 32 and change. Interesting that emerging markets, I say only, and I'm using my air quotes here, was only down 21%. The aggregate, the proxy that we use for the bond market was down 13%, which is a lot for the bond market relative to historical performances. And then a broad measure of commodities were actually up about 16%. So when you look under the hood, We started off the first two months of the year with negatives, then we came back a little bit in March, and then we had three down to flat months. July was up 9%, then we had two more down months. September was really bad, down 9%. And then we saw actually a rally in October and November of 8% in October, and this for the S&P, by the way, and then about 5.5% in November, but then we saw a 6% downturn for December. So overall, that's how we ended up with that. Let's just call it down 19% for the S&P of just rounding. Some of the sectors, as you can imagine, tech did very poorly. Communication services, which are your social media companies, did very poorly. Consumer discretionary did very poorly. Some sectors that didn't do as poorly as the overall markets, healthcare and industrials were down single digits. Consumer staples was almost flat. Interestingly, and I talk about this in the blog, so you can go check that on the website, the energy sector was up over 64% for the year. And again, depending on how you look at dividends and things like that. But that's real quick for sectors, how that did. If you look at the sectors, those were S&P ETFs. If you look at those same sectors from the Russell 1000, which is instead of 500 stocks in the S&P, you got 1,000 to pick from, which makes it a little bit more interesting. 
technology and communication services both down in the 30s. You had consumer discretionary and real estate down in the mid-20s. And energy in the Russell 1000, that sector was up 54%. So a little bit lower of a return velocity there if you look at it from the Russell 1000. But pretty much the sectors were all over the board. And with the energy being up either 54 or 64%, depending on yours. You beat me to my question was what actually did perform well last year, if anything? When you say what performed well, my response would be like relative to what? Relative to the S&P or whatever. I mean, some things that did well, utilities, consumer staples, healthcare, industrials, that weren't down that much. So if you had some of those in your portfolio, and frankly, financials didn't do as poorly as the S&P or the Russell. So kind of an interesting sector breakdown. Some of the things that did well didn't get talked about, did they, Nate? No. And I think that maybe is the theme of 2022 is for so long, things that were neglected to use maybe too strong of a term, but underappreciated companies with strong balance sheets, strong fundamentals. For a while, no one cared about those. They cared about how quick is a company growing, those tech companies that you mentioned, the volatility to the downside. But with fundamentals coming back into the light in 2022, that's the takeaway. And I think, Dave, you brought up the really key point. 2022 is a year of negative performance for so many things, but you got to keep your eye on relative performance in a year like that. How did you do and what is it compared to? Volatility on both ways. Energy being up, that's upside volatility. Then you have the downside volatility with tech. It's a volatile year that had intramonth swings that were large. I'll chime in here. Let's get a little specific about some stuff we do at Monument. We talk broadly about the equity markets. Let's start off with something that didn't go as well as we thought it probably should have or we would have liked it to. And that, of course, is flexible asset allocation, FAA for longtime clients. And readers and listeners, you guys know this is something we talk about a lot. And as a reminder of what FAA is, it's an ETF-based strategy that's designed to participate in trends. It's long only or in cash. It can be in stocks, bonds, or cash. It's designed to pick up on trends. When you're in an uptrend in the equity markets, it's designed to participate there. When there's not an uptrend in the equity markets, you should be in what we'll call risk-off assets, either bonds or cash. And of course, we got it with both barrels this year with both stocks and bonds being down. So FAA had a rough year. It's because of what all characterizes whipsaw. Dave, when you were in the intro talking about the various months that we had throughout 2022, you talked about a couple of up months and some down months. That's what we characterize as whipsaw. And we had it not only in the stock markets, but in the bond markets. And I think the defining characteristic of 2022 is that whipsaw environment. We had in 2022, three times as many 10% equity market corrections than we had in all other years. And the same goes for bonds. I don't have the drawdown stats there, but bonds had their worst year in something like 40 years. So it really didn't perform how we intended it to perform in that type of a whipsaw environment, which we know is not great for this type of a trend model. We unfortunately got that in 2022. What I will say, though, is for the fixed income component of flexible asset allocation, we call that tactical bonds. It's the same intellectual property, but we apply it to just bonds and cash. So you're either in the bond markets or you're in the cash markets or you're in a combination of both. That actually did pretty well this year. And we proxy the benchmark for something like our tactical bond model is not being the U.S. aggregate, which Dave, you mentioned at the top of the podcast. We look more at the global aggregate because we can be invested in both U.S. bond markets and across the globe. But we actually saw this year in that strategy, roughly a third of the downside to the global ag. And that was actually due to 
tactical bonds, which again borrows from that same intellectual property from FAA, but it's derived from that model being in cash for five months in the year. So 100% cash, not in the bond markets at all. It's just sitting it out in something like a cash proxy, which we usually characterize as three-month T-bills. So that actually did work pretty well. Just a few things to round out what else went well, relatively speaking, Nate, as you said, you need to keep things in context. Our single stock dividend models have done pretty well, and some shades of our trio factor-based models as well have done pretty good as well. Nate, you talked about some of these high-tech, unproven, unicorns, too strong of a word, actually Michael Simblist, who is the CIO over at JP Morgan Asset Management, really brilliant guy. He had his annual introductory podcast slash webinar yesterday, and he's written pretty extensively about, I'm going to borrow his terms here. He calls them the yucks and the mucks, young and profitable or mega valued and unprofitable companies. And I think you get what we're driving at here, which is companies within five years since their IPO, not profitable, or companies that are either hugely overvalued, depending on whatever metric you look at. I think the metric he used was just trailing price to earnings and looking at companies that are valued at like 50x earnings. Or again, a lot of these don't even have earnings, they're unprofitable. But I'd say that for the large part, and I'd be willing if I had to go back and do an exhaustive postmortem on this, we haven't or have never owned in 2022 any of those quote unquote yucks and mucks our model disciplines are pretty good about kicking those out either from a fundamental standpoint or also a valuation standpoint. We've got some guardrails on our model portfolio. So that's another thing along with tactical bonds that's worked well. And then just to round things out, you don't invest to take losses. That's bass backwards. You invest to compound your money over time and grow your wealth. But our active tax loss harvesting strategies, that's TRIO for longtime clients and listeners, Nate and I were talking this morning and cumulatively, and this is a ballpark figure, we actively booked somewhere in the realm of about $2.3 million worth of losses across all of the various strategies that are designed to have active tax loss harvesting as a part of their daily investing. So there's some things that did pretty well. Again, it's those dividend strategies. It was the tactical bond strategies that we have, and then also basic active tax loss harvesting. Any other silver linings from the year? The one I guess I can comment on is not every investor has in their portfolio, no investment is, and it's not right for every investor, but they're public non-traded REITs. So we can have a whole podcast episode about how those investments are managed, operated, valued, but really they are the bright spot. There's some nuances behind it, but without getting too much in the details, how those investments are structured and how they're valued, they are illiquid physical properties, which are not valued in the stock market on a daily basis. They're not subject to the emotional swing sometimes that you see in the market. If tech is down 30%, as we kind of saw, energy was the only thing that kind of escaped the pull of those big names lower. Well, in some of these private investments that are a little more illiquid with longer term time horizons, the valuations can be a little more stable in the interim. I don't want to get in too much there, but that is a bright spot you've seen. And it's coming up in the news a little bit, too, for various reasons. I have a feeling we might touch on it a little bit later in the episode when we get to some of the surprises and what else we saw in 2022. But outside of energy stocks, and as Aaron mentioned, some of those tax loss harvesting strategies, which do add value from the rebalancing efforts, I would say that would be the other area that kind of saw some positive and some good performance. So Nate, you mentioned surprises. I'd love to pick up on that. So what were, in your guys' mind, some of the biggest surprises of 2022 in the markets? 
I'll start with the obvious one, 10-year treasury rate. <laughs> if you would have told me that the 10-year would have peaked around 425 during the year and ended the year around 388 after starting the year around 150, I wouldn't have believed it. In fact, it was the year of weddings for me. So I was down at a wedding this year, speaking with some of my friends who works in real estate. And he was asking me what is going to happen with interest rates, because that matters to his business quite heavily, lending. And I told him at the time, I'd be surprised if they got to three. And I think rates were around 220, 230 at the time. And as you can see, I was clearly wrong, which is why I don't really like making individual predictions over a short time period, the usual speech. But I think that was one of the biggest surprises for most people. Another one I thought was really interesting is we mentioned the positive performance in energy stocks. I kind of want to break out the performance of the underlying commodity, oil, and specifically WTI is what it's called, West Texas Intermediate, I believe is the term. If you look at the price of oil over the course of the year, as the conflict in Ukraine unfolded during the first half, right along with energy stocks, we saw oil prices move up and move quickly. However, in the back half of the year, energy prices fell off. And we're seeing that in some of the inflation data moderating. And you're seeing it as gases at the prices at the pump are moving lower. But you didn't see that in the energy stocks. Energy stocks were maintaining all the gains that they held from the price appreciation of oil earlier in the year, while oil sold off underneath. And that discrepancy is something that's interesting to watch and something I'm going to be watching into 2023 is as oil prices come back down, maybe in the 70s or away from 120, which I would think is an extreme range, how do energy companies hold up? I'd say my surprises are right along the lines of Nate's. He mentioned WTI and the discrepancy between oil prices and the actual underlying energy stocks. I think you're seeing how you can have commodity proxies that end up being not great proxies for the underlying commodity. That can work in your favor and against you. Here over the latter half of 2022, it's actually worked in your favor. As Nate said, a lot of these DNP names, exploration and production, they've been remarkably resilient despite the fact that oil has come crashing back down to earth. It's picked up a bit here a little bit recently, but the price increases have really definitely been tamed. And I think you're seeing that too at the gas station as well. And there's a lot that goes into that. There was huge dumps out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which can account for that as well. But that was definitely a surprise. I wasn't expecting that. I would characterize 2022. There's a meme. It's actually from Anchorman, great movie. Everyone loves Anchorman, <laughs> where Will Ferrell's sitting back after they get in the fight and he's having a beer. And he says, well, that escalated quickly. quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say that definitely describes 2022 in my mind. I don't think people outside of the Austrian economics crowd, which I will gladly raise my hand and say I was that guy over the last 10 years, my thinking has since changed, but I don't think too many people fully appreciated the level of monetary and fiscal stimulus that eventually came back to bite us in the ass. That's exactly what happened. I don't think that we had 40-year high inflation and the fastest Fed rate hike cycle in history on your bingo card. Dave and I and they, we like to go back and look at predictions from the prior year. Bloomberg puts out a really good aggregate piece. It's titled, they do it the same way every year. It's called, here's parentheses, almost everything Wall Street expects in 2022. They recently put out their 2023. But in 2022, I was scanning some of the baseline economic and market predictions. No one had 40-year high inflation. No one had this type of a Fed rate hike cycle in mind. They had some CYA stuff in there, which is volatility picking up and likely some higher inflation, but no one had what happened in 2022 on their bingo card, which makes it interesting and sometimes can make it very painful. Another interesting thing in the context of what worked, it's worth just talking for a second about 
it may not have worked, but it worked better. A lot of people who are indexers, and it's a popular strategy, you use some ETFs. But if you're not a stock picker and you're just picking ETFs, you may be inclined to say, and we hear this all the time, why shouldn't I just go out and buy a bunch of the S&P 500 index fund and just let it go and not have to worry about stock picking everything? And we all know this, but with the S&P 500 being a market cap weighted index, you are not buying 500 stocks that are equally weighted. You're buying, I think, the highest weighted stock is like Microsoft or Apple or one of those. And I guess depending on the day too. But those are weighted in the 5% range. 5% of the entire S&P 500 is weighted in one stock or two. I think there's two or three stocks that are in the 5% range on any given day. But there's 500, 498 other ones, depending on how many are in the index. It's not always 500. But you look at it and you're like, okay, well, what about Whirlpool? That's in the S&P 500 index. It is 0.02% weighting. So Whirlpool could do really, really well. Consumer staples could do really, really well as a sector. But if you're an S&P 500 index owner, it may not be moving the needle that much. Getting around to what did work was if you're an indexer and you are actually, instead of buying the S&P 500 exposure, you bought the S&P 500 equal-weighted ETF, you did much better than just somebody who is basically indexing. You're essentially closet stock selecting when you just buy the S&P 500 index. You're passively investing in 10 stocks that carry a lot of the weight of the index. And so if you were in, say, the Invesco S&P 500 ETF, which is ticker RSP, Romeo, Sierra, Papa, and you were in that versus the SPY, you had a seven percentage point better return than just being in the S&P 500 index fund market weighted. So there were some things that did better that nobody's really talking about. That equal weighted, you're spreading the risk out across truly the 500 stocks. Each stock represents one 500th of a weight. Some of the people who indexed like that did better. I think that's such a great point, Dave. I think a lot of people, another lesson learned maybe from 2022 is know what you own. Even if you own ETFs, you can be concentrated in a handful of stocks without knowing it, and it can have impacts. I think a lot of people were maybe surprised at how much in the top big fang names they really owned. And when your performance started to reflect it, I think that's something we always need to be aware of if you're owning ETFs. What are you actually holding underneath? What's the conclusion that people should draw from all this? Because I think you've talked about some of the silver linings, but I think the feeling is still always crappy here. What's the conclusion? What's some positive that we can take from this? I want to be a positive person. I want to be optimistic. Yes, I know you are, Nate. (laughs) What can I take away? Year is over. Stick it in the memory banks and you live through it. Dave, you wrote about this a little bit in your blog. There's been some negative years in the stock market that you've lived through now. And this is the first one for me. This is the first one where I can really say, hey, sentiment was bad all year and there was no place to hide. You got to look at it as an emotional learning lesson and an emotional benchmark. Now this gives me my emotional benchmark for the future. Anytime I'm feeling uneasy, this gives me a time to look back on, hey, remember when the bond markets were down double digits in December? Hey, remember when the S&P was down 20? There's little lessons you can learn to make you a better investor going forward from a psychological standpoint. Take the pain and I guess maybe smile while you do it. There's the optimistic side. That's pretty good. Aaron, how about you? Mine's pretty simple. It's investing's hard. And I think people are finding that out. And I am subtly subtweeting some acquaintances, some friends and family that I know that I would receive text messages and emails, phone calls over the last couple of years since the pandemic started, which is, my God, this is so easy. 
why are you not invested in all these meme stocks? Let me put it this way. Those people have shut up. I haven't heard from those people in a long time. Investing's hard. Or the SPAC people, or the crypto or the people, people, or the NFT people, all related. I'm not getting too much investing advice from my Uber driver anymore, which not to put down that profession or that type of a gig, but the point being, it's not a good sign when you are seeing people who would normally not be exhibiting these types of risky behavior and they're out there doing it like it's a casino. Investing's hard. And I'm just going to continue to reiterate the biggest thing that we tell our clients. We told clients this back in, I remember it very clearly, November of 2021, we had a very specific client who was asking us about crypto and we did a deep dive and we brought some people in and had a roundtable discussion. But along with that discussion, we continue to hammer the message, which is this, don't risk what you have and need for something that you don't have and you don't need. This is a long game. We can slice and dice performance by any time period you want, and I can make any manager or any individual investor look great over a certain time frame. Not to dunk on Kathy Wood and the ARC funds, but she's in the crosshairs these days. Her fund is really taking it in the press, and she's had some pretty terrible fund performance. At one point, she was the new paradigm. These yuck muck companies that Symbolist talked about, these quote innovation stocks, this was supposed to change the game. And that stuff has since come crashing back to earth. So the point there is this is a long game. Don't blow yourself up. And again, don't risk what you have and need for something you don't have and don't need. Our clients, for the most part, you don't need to be hitting home runs. You've already hit the home run building your business, building all this wealth, depending on how you acquire it. You spent a lifetime doing it. Don't blow yourself up. And I'd like to think that for the most part, we have clients that really take our advice and aren't out here trying to do something they know they shouldn't be doing. That's sort of a way of saying hats off to our clients for being good clients in that regard. That's true. This is a public shout out to all of our clients for being great clients and taking our advice. Having great behavioral finance tendencies. Not that we normally talk about this stuff in the podcast, but I'll just throw it out there to the three clients that listen to this. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Yes. Happy New Year. You guys probably get this too, to some degree or another, but the people will say to me, or people said to me a lot last year, Ooh, things must be really tough. You must be really busy at work. You must be like fielding all And I'm like, I don't think anybody called up in a panic last year. No one called. I mean, there were people who were like, hey, I've got a concern over XYZ. But for the most part, that makes me and I know the whole team feel good. But it also goes back to context. Nate, like you were saying, and Aaron, you were alluding to this as well. I started out in the business in the summer of 1999. So I had like, let's just call it six to nine months before the wheels really started coming off everything. And I'll never forget in the fall of 1999, sitting in a meeting with a client at the firm that I worked with. It wasn't my client. I was new in the business, so I was just observing. And there was a research analyst at my firm. I started out working in a firm called Donaldson Lufkin Generat. It's gone now, but they hung their hat on research. They were a research shop. So everybody who was a research analyst there, whether they were strategy or individual securities or whatever it was, just really, really smart and well-respected people. And one of the research analysts was bearish on everything that was happening with all the internet stocks at the time. As he was bearish, all those stocks kept going up. Pets.com, Webvan, you remember Inktome, everybody remembers all the stocks that were just going through the roof. And this client said, you guys hang your hat on research and you talk about how smart you are. And all the while, your research analyst, Mr. Jim Smith, is saying that this is unsustainable and it can't happen and everything else. Yet meanwhile, I have bought 
Webvan and WebMD and DrCoop.com and all these crazy things. And I'm making money hand over fist. So who's the smart person and who's the idiot in this scenario? And I was like, ooh, whoa. I'll never forget. Like That was the moment where I was like, people are out of their mind with this whole internet thing. Like Nate, you were saying your first experience. That was my first experience with listening to people whose expectations about the market and trees just growing in the sky was so out of place and so out of whack. I was like, that doesn't sit well with me. You can't sit here and think, just because you own five stocks, you're a genius. And this guy has been doing this for 30 years and has this amazing research track record is wrong. And I was like, wow, there's a disconnect there. And I feel like what we just saw for the past 12 months was really reminiscent of that time with the NFTs and the all the stuff that Aaron, I was just making fun of five minutes ago. It just reminded me of those times. 20 years from now, I mean, hopefully I'm still talking about this kind of stuff, but I may be wearing a bib or something. But if I'm not drooling all over myself, you guys will be the ones who say like, oh, I'll never forget 2022 with all the <laughs> NFTs and the crypto. Like you'll start talking, you'll reminisce, be like, oh, I remember back when I was a young whippersnapper in the business. And Is that, that what happened? we're going to sound like? <laughs> I don't know. That's my impression of what you'll sound like. Like we like to say, we can't predict the future. We can always play with possibilities, <laughs> probabilities, but possible, sure. Probable, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's what you sound like, Jessica, when you're older. I definitely won't. <laughs> well, I'm the financial planner here, not the markets expert. But for me, I think about what is the conclusion from this year. For me, it comes to cash flow. I think about what if you were planning to get a mortgage and all of a sudden the rates change dramatically? What does your cash flow look like? What is it that you need money for cash in the next year or so for major expenses? Where is that going to come from? What if you've done the work and you don't need cash? How do you know if now is a good time for you to invest versus stay in cash? I think a lot of those answers come down to knowing and understanding what your cash flow is, what it's going to look like in the next 12 to 18 months, so that you can really make the smart choices of, do I keep it in cash or do I invest? I think that's a question that we get a lot from people. And I think they're more trying to ask in the sense of market timing. I think maybe is where it comes from, but our answer always comes back to, if you don't need this cash, then yeah, now's a good time to invest in equities. And yes, it could go down a little bit, but it could also go up. But if you're someone who does need that cash in the next six months, and our answer is going to be different. Our answer is going to be keeping in cash. So I think this was a good exercise in knowing what your cash flow needs are, because when the market goes down, when you see your account values go down, when you see your borrowing amounts change... It really feels like a gut punch. It's very stressful. I like, Nate, what you said about filing this past year away in your memory bank, because I think it is a good indication of when push comes to shove, you may be put into a position that you really don't feel good about. Try to keep yourself in a good position. That's why I always think about what is your cash flow going to be? That's what I always talk about with our clients. It cuts both ways as well, talking about, especially with interest rates and cash needs. For a long time, since I started my career, and Dave, you said 1999, mine was right around 2010, so coming out of the great financial crisis, I was been taught or the drumbeat for the entire time, or not the entire, but a good 10 years or so has been be prepared for a rising rate environment, be prepared for a rising rate environment. We started to get that a little bit in 2015. Fed took their foot off the accelerator on rate hikes back in 2018, I believe it was when it was, but we more or less have had zero rates. Savers have had no place to go the whole concept of financial repression and Tina, which is there is no alternative. You've got to be in stocks or nothing. You can get yield now. Admittedly, at this stage of the game, might not be a positive real yield given where inflation is, but we're creeping closer to that point. 
to where yields are such a place and inflation coming down to such a place that you're actually starting to eke out some positive real yield depending on what you're investing in, whether it's municipals, investment grade corporates, or even high yield. So it cuts both ways with rates, which is a six, 7% mortgage rate, all that sucks. Well, savers now or someone who has cash to invest and cash flow based planning, look at fixed income right now. This is not a bad time to be looking at that. It cuts both ways. Yeah. If you have your cash, it's just sitting in cash in the bank checking account. Now is your opportunity to go find Google high yield savings account and you might actually get something. I want to come back to Nate mentioned it earlier. He mentioned the phrase, what he's watching in 2023. He mentioned oil. I'd love to kind of hear what you guys are watching in 2023. I only have a couple things. And I think this may more or less mirror some of the stuff that Dave and Nate are going to throw out there. I think we're going to continue to see, maybe not immediately, I think the quote unquote growth stocks, however you define that, we'll just say large cap tech. I think we're going to see a bounce in those at some point in 2023. I think you're going to see some of these tech names outperform, which is going to catch a lot of people off sides because people are incredibly bearish right now. And I think you could potentially get a bounce there. I do think there's going to be a longer term continuation of the theme of more value stocks, tangible stocks, companies that deal more in tangible goods and not necessarily a service base. So thinking of industrials, materials, the unsexy parts of the economy, the unsexy parts of the market. I think you're going to see a return to those types of companies being in favor and those types of stocks being in favor. They, we call that a style box rotation is sort of a technical term. So going from more of the quote unquote large cap growth to something like a large cap value, starting to see that trend continue to play out over time. And then the other thing that I'll be looking for is at some point, you're going to get some outperformance out of non-US stocks. It's going to happen at some point, whether that's in developed international, which is your EFA stocks or an EM, it's going to happen. I think that's going to be largely dependent on what happens with China. So there's a lot to watch for there in 2023. I have a couple of varying opinions, or they vary from what you all just said. But I want to come back before I get into that question. And I just want to come back to something, Jessica, you said before, which and it was the tag on what Nate said about like, hey, file this away. But I want to point out that there's another way to file something away. Because if you think back to when the market was down really bad, how bad you felt, and if you found yourself saying, I really wish that I had sold some stock back when the Dow was almost about to hit 37,000, and people are like, God, I wish I had raised some cash then. Okay, great. You should file that feeling away as well. Because someday when the Dow gets back to 37,000 or the S&P gets back to around, let's call it 4,800, are you then going to say, okay, now I'm going to raise some cash? If you said that you would wish you'd have done it when it was at 37,000 back in January of 2022 and it gets there again, are you going to raise cash? And I suspect the answer will be no, because people will be like, ooh, the market's coming back up and I'm feeling good and I'm not going to sell now because the market's going up. There are these two things to catalog. One is catalog how you feel when things are really bad and catalog how you feel when things were really good because those two emotions together drive a lot of behavior and fear and greed and wish and hope and those kind of things. It's another great thing to file away is, hey, if the market got back up, would you sell? People right now would say, hell yeah, I would. And then when it gets there, they'll say, no, nah, let's let this thing run. It's going to happen. But that's my point out. I think we all know what we say about predictions. They're fun to make just because we're all intellectually curious. and We like to know what we think and the discourse is interesting. 
But before I even get into it, the thing to remember is that it shouldn't matter what anybody's prediction is because likely it'll be wrong. They're not actionable. There's three buckets. There's ideas that are interesting, ideas that are actionable, and there's ideas that are both. These fall under the interesting and not actionable thoughts and thinking. But I actually think that one of the things for 2023 is that there's probably a much higher probability of stagflation, high inflation, low growth, than there is on resurging inflation. I don't think we'll see inflation surge back up higher from here. This is my prediction. So I think we'll see more of a low growth, high inflation environment than a massive boom in inflation again. Personally, I think we've hit peak inflation. We have seen peak inflation. And I've written about that before where I think it's a lot of that inflation was the function of money growth. And Aaron, you said that before when you pump so much money into the system. I think that's bled off. So that feeds into my prediction there. I do have a different opinion on the tech than Aaron does. So this is always kind of fun when we disagree because it doesn't matter that we disagree. Again, this is interesting and not actionable, but I think some of this, I'll call it price resetting, some of this price resetting that has taken place in the big cap tech names, I think it's actually going to continue a little bit in 2023. And I wouldn't be surprised if tech is once again another underperforming sector. Aaron's got a great point, which is, hey, at some point, people are going to think enough is enough and they're going to get it. I just don't know if we've seen the enough is enough point. So that may be where I think the space is still a little overcrowded. I still think there are those people who are hanging on thinking everything's going to come back. I don't know if we've seen the final capitulation in the tech sector. So that's my little variation on that. I think we're going to see another year where value stocks outperform growth stocks in 2023. I just, that's just what I think. That gets back to what Aaron was saying, too, on some of the more higher quality names. I think people were just going to naturally start sharpening their pencil and looking at stocks as to whether or not they're a good buy rather than throwing money at whatever we were talking before about the meme stocks, just what's in the news, what's popular. Here's my outlier prediction, and again, not actionable, but I have a funny feeling that all this talk about ESG, investing as a style, environmental, the whole everything. Social governance. Yeah, sustainability and governance. Sorry, I should have explained that up front. But I actually think that that focus of an investing style is going to suffer. And I'm not saying it's a bad strategy, and I'm not saying that it's a bunch of bunk. I'm just saying that people are going to look at this and they're going to say, high fees, low returns, failed objectives, those things are going to continue to take their toll on this strategy and investors are going to abandon it. So I think that we will see some of these ESG strategies not do that well in 2023. In others, I don't think they're going to come back. I think they're actually going to do worse. People just get out of them. I'll say it for you, Dave. You say, I'm not going to call a bunk. I'll call a bunk. I've got some other four-letter words for it. But Yeah, well, bunk's a good one, though. I love that word, bunk. It's good. It's a bunch of bunk. I can tell you when I knew it was bunk, this was back in February, I think it was, of last year, when, unfortunately, everything that went down in Eastern Europe with Ukraine and Russia And this was a literal Bloomberg headline. It was European economies, European finance ministers, whoever is responsible for this, considering a push to make defense contractors, people who produce missile batteries, et cetera, to classify those types of companies as the quote-unquote good participants in an ESG framework so they could get them more financing. That's how I knew this was bunk, which was up until this time, These guys were considered the devil themselves, but now we're just going to make an exception for defense contractors. That's my little sidebar and rant on that. But yes, I think it's bunk. I mean, I think Aaron and I have had a lot of conversations throughout the year. It's like, what does ESG mean to you? It's a question that we put to clients. And I think rather than just going with ESG as just a 
industry-wide term, and I'm going to invest in this way that is marketed to think about for you personally. What does that look like? And as a planner, I also feather in charitable giving as part of that, is that your charitable giving could be part of how you view ESG for yourself and your portfolios. If there's industries that you want to screen out, industries that you actually want to invest in, like put forward. It feels to me, Aaron and I, we've had a lot of conversations about it. It's a lot more nuanced than just saying, I'm buying an ESG mutual fund. You can definitely go down the rabbit hole because you can't just throw out there and say to yourself, like, I'm an ESG investor. That's like saying, I like to eat food. <laughs> oh, no shit. So do I. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about there. So I'll just throw this out. It's a buzzword. I think it's captured a lot of attention. As a portfolio manager, I don't like it. I think it places murky constraints on sectors and increases risk. It compromises returns, blah, blah, blah. I'd said all that. I think investors suffer. But here's an example. 75% of all ESG funds own Amazon. Someone just take a guess and tell me what you think about the massive carbon footprint of Amazon. And all the while, 95% of all of Wall Street has rated Amazon as a buy. Meanwhile, it was down 40% in calendar year 2022. And now you take the other side of the coin, which is the ultimate ESG villain, ExxonMobil. I mean, what did we say it was up? I think it was up 80% last year. I think Exxon was up 80%. I'm swagging that a little bit, but it's around there. And nobody wanted it. Nobody in the ESG world wanted it. So those constraints that are at work, I think, that's one of my predictions, I think, that ESG is going to suffer next year. And, and I'll just kind of wrap it up by saying that if I have to guess my picks for making my podcast bet is that my picks are going to be value stocks. I think probably some of the smaller capitalization indexes are going to do well relative to these big cap tech names. I think I previously said I think are going to continue to suffer a little bit. I think commodities are going to continue to do well into 2023. Of course, that's a big catch-all. That's like, hey, I'm going to catch a big net of fish. I just don't know which fish are going to be in it. And like Aaron said, I wouldn't be shocked to see international do a little bit better than what everybody has been seeing over the past few years and probably people are expecting going forward. Those are my rough things. I think we go to 15 votes in the House before a speaker is elected. There you go. There you go. Look, I'll take the over. Interesting, not actionable. But there you go. So next year when we do this episode, I want to play back that clip, have a little like twinkling music and then play back your clip and then come back and be like, let's save right or wrong. I want to do a little scorecard. We'll save that for next year. And if I'm wrong, it won't matter because it's not actual advice. It's just fun to talk about. And our three clients who are listening to this are all laughing in the car. So, <laughs> so Nate, I want to give you a chance to wrap up any other things that you are watching in 2023. If you want to dive into predictions, you're welcome to. If you don't, that's okay. <laughs> So the prediction I'll make is fundamentals will matter and we're in a show me market. So if we're in a show me market where fundamentals matter, meaning we need to see on a balance sheet, we need to see the cash flow. Long gone are the days of free money. They like to say that Uber subsidized the millennial generation for years. Uber lost money by letting anyone and everyone use their service. And that was a business model that garnered interest from investors. Well, if I have a bond that will give me 4 or 5% now that rates have risen, I need to see clarity in my stock investments. I need to see quality. I don't like the whole value growth debate. I understand where it comes from. It's the generic classifications of stocks. But in a lot of worlds, people say Amazon and Apple are growth stocks. If they can show 
value stock qualities, pay a dividend, show free cash flow, manage their expenses and keep their margin growth. They will easily participate in an uptrend in this kind of market that wants clarity and growth. I'm still waiting for the day where Amazon splits Amazon Web Services in the retail business and pays a six or seven, some absurd dividend on the retail business. That's where we're heading. We're heading, I think, into a market that is going to value cash flows fundamentals. And we saw that this year was the start of it. I think that's a longer trend that we'll see. Well, I think with that, I think we'll wrap up. Awesome. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Always fun. As we start year three of the podcast, Steve and I, I just want to say I really appreciate everyone who's been tuning in and listens and gives us feedback and has ideas about new episodes that we can do. So if you have an idea, if you'd love to hear us talk about something or have a guest on, we are all ears. We'd love to hear it. So let us know. Definitely. I just wrote about this in the blog too. We're going to be doing more of this kind of stuff too. Just us talking about markets and things. It's popular. People like it. They're listening to it. We're going to do more of it. Looking forward to that. Cheers to the new year. Have a great 2023. Thanks everybody. The previous presentation by Monument Wealth Management LLC, Monument, was intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice for Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non-investment related or planning services, discussion, or content will be profitable, be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of this content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he should will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. A copy of Monument's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at monumentwealthmanagement.com.